for all the midfield skills there were no goals in the first half and against expectation the two defences had held. There was even briefly a hint of stalemate. Then in the classic Newcastle fashion, out of defence to Melbourne. An exchange with Robledo and Melbourne was gone. Blackpool didn't give up by any means and with Matthews constantly prompting them, they still gave the Newcastle defence some anxious moments. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me of course is Jonathan Wilson and with us is historian Dan Jackson, contributor to History Today, the New Statesman, the BBC, author of the critically acclaimed book The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People, A New History and one-time historical advisor for Cheryl Tweedy. Dan, pleasure to have you on the show. Delighted to be here, Marcus. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, Today we go all the way back to the 1951 FA Cup final, Newcastle United 2, Blackpool 0. Dan, why have you chosen this game? Well, it's um, it was the first of the three uh, FA Cup final wins that Newcastle enjoyed in the 1950s. And it's it's slightly come to signify this sepia-tinged golden age uh, for Newcastle and the North East to an extent, uh, n- not just because these are the last domestic trophies the club has, has won, mm-hmm. um, but also because the 1950s were a, quite an optimistic time uh, in the North East, actually. It was something of a golden age. Um, its traditional heavy industries had a bit of a resurgence in Indian <clears throat> summer after the Second World War. And I think the success of Newcastle is bound up in a lot of folk memory, really, um, in the northeast of this slightly, as I said, sepia-tinged uh, golden era that people look back on fondly, and it's it's mm. wrapped up in a in a slightly um, how can I put it um, nostalgic. Nostalgia is a big mm. part of of the northeast mm. sentimentality too, and. Mm. Even eighties kids like me grew up with the, the the stories of Jackie Milburn and so on in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, I, I, Dan, it's a certain club from the northeast is often mentioned on this podcast. And I, I think, <laughs> I think to be honest, this whole thing is a ruse for Jonathan to to cram in as many Sunderland mentions as he possibly well, I mean, can I, in unlikely places. <laughs> we should just point out that you know, as Dan talks about this golden age for the northeast, yeah, yeah. The, the previous year. <laughs> Sunderland had broken the world transfer record for the fourth time, <laughs> signing Trevor Ford from Cardiff, yeah, making I mean, them one of only five teams to have broken the world uh-huh. transfer record on four or more occasions, with other such are. giants as Real Madrid, Juventus, Inter and AC Milan. Common bedfellows, those lot. The uh, the Bank of England club, I'm sure Jonathan's talked about that in the past, um, that, mm. was, that was Sunderland. And in many respects, Newcastle had had this, in its history, um, uh, Sunderland were certainly the pioneers in terms of football league representation in the northeast. Had a great side in the eighteen nineties and so on. Then Newcastle uh, emerged quite strongly in the Edwardian period. There's a rather good piece on Blizzard currently about uh, their great passing side of the mm. of the nineteen hundreds, um, where they they won the league three times. They got the four FA Cup finals, won one. They had a bit of a tricky interwar period. They won the cup again in nineteen twenty four in the second Wembley final against Villa. And again in 1932 against Arsenal, but then they they had a, a, a fairly disastrous decline um, 
uh, they were relegated in the mid-30s, and then Sunderland reasserted themselves for about the next 20 years as probably the top team in the northeast. Um, it was only it was only Hitler really that interrupted <laughs> uh, Sunderland's progress, wasn't it? In the yeah, uh, two world wars, really scuppered us. Uh, <laughs> we did many other things, but let's not forget Sunderland were two games from the double in 1913. Yeah, and then yeah, they won the league in 36, won the cup in 37. And then, you know, I mean, they also could have contributed to their own downfall by by not renewing Ray Carter's contract after the war. He went to Derby, got to two FA Cup mm. finals in you know, in the first two two seasons, won one of them. Mm. And, you know, Sunderland thought he was past it and, and he clearly wasn't. And and they then sort of, you know, they, they end up chasing it a bit, spending, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds and never really got the got the rewards that the, the, the outlay probably demanded. Mm. Yeah, and they even bought um, Len Shackleton from from Newcastle in the late uh, in the late forties. Was it nineteen forty seven, forty eight? Around that time, the Clown Prince, um, great footballer, well, I mean, Joe Pony. But um, but that was that was part of the problem. I mean, it was a classic case of a club with with loads of money spending it stupidly. So Shackleton was a fantastic footballer, but he was not a great team man. And yeah. so when Trevor Ford arrived, you know, the world transfer record has been broken. And Shackleton suddenly is not the king anymore, and he doesn't like this. So the story goes that he, you know, he, he was an inside left, and you're playing the ball to, to to Ford, and he he deliberately loaded it with spin so that Ford couldn't control it. And mm. after Ford had sort of miscontrolled half a dozen passes on his debut, Shackleton would turn to the crowd and and shrug as if you know what this guy's your hero now. So <laughs> there was no real sort of concept of team building. But I mean, something you know, we should say about this FA Cup uh, campaign in general is that Sunderland got to the quarterfinal, mm-hmm. drew with Wolves at Roker, mm-hmm. then got beaten 3-1 at Molyneux, and if they'd won that tie, it would have been a tie-in-weir semi-final. Indeed. And I, and I wonder if that's... We've been nowhere close to a tie-in-weir final, as far as I understand, Jonathan. I don't Not know that I'm aware of. The no. semi-final would have been the closest we got in the early 50s. Indulge me for a second on the social history of mm-hmm. this. 1951 is an interesting period because you're coming out of the austerity of the 1940s. You know, Labour lose the general election in 1951. Churchill returns, partly because people are a bit fed up with the kind of grey misery of um, of that post-war period. So you've got 1951. It's the Festival of Britain where a young Bobby Robson worked as an a, a electrician mm-hmm. and building the Royal Festival Hall when he was a, mm-hmm. a young, a young uh, trainee at Fulham. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've still got the sense of the Northeast having quite a bit of influence on, on the national stage. 1951 is also the year when there's that famous quote when um, Attlee, or, sorry, uh, Morrison, Herbert Morrison, you know, Attlee's, Attlee's number two, is asked about whether Britain should join the fledgling European coal and steel community. And he just, he just dismisses it with the line, no, the Durham miners will never wear it. <laughs> which uh, has gone down in folklore, but it's it's. I think it speaks to the the power and influence of the of the miners' unions, particularly the Durham miners, who were incredibly influential in national affairs. And like I said earlier, it, it, there was this brief resurgence again in the nineteen fifties of very heavy industry, and the northeast put all its eggs in in the very heavy industri- industrial mm-hmm. basket. But also that sense of um, I don't know if, you, if you listeners have read David Edgerton's book, the 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 rise and fall of the British nation where he says, you know, instead of a new Jerusalem, they built a new Sparta, where there's absolutely vast defence spending by the Labour governments and then the Conservative governments. And that played very nicely into the, the North East's strengths as the 
there's a shipbuilding base and armaments base and so on. So a growing buoyant economy backed by the welfare state, the football team doing well, it's understandably looked back on quite fondly this era. Yeah, and I, I, well, absolutely. So, what is you, you've you've talked about the the situation in in the fifties in the northeast there? Yeah. Just just very quickly, just to give a bit more context, what was it? What was happening in the rest of the country? If you see what I mean. Well, the the nineteen fifties, like I said, it's 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 a it's a resurgence. It's an optimistic period. Um, mm-hmm. You've got that cushion of the welfare state with you know vast expansion of council housing. You've got the NHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a kind of a system of social security that if you if you look back to the 1930s um which is quite an uneven picture actually people tend to associate the 1930s with images like the Jarrow march and so on which is which was representative i think of the situation in the northeast which was pretty grim partly because their economy hadn't d- diversified at all uh, there's a there's a moment in the early 1920s where armstrongs who the great manufacturer of ships and artillery pieces and so on, briefly consider manufacturing motor cars on Tyneside and then think, nah, <laughs> there's no future in this. <laughs> it could have been a sort of free Nissan. And yeah, then yeah. they just they just concentrate on heavy weaponry, which kind of goes out of favour in the 1920s. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it comes roaring back with the Second World War. Um, so it's a buoyant economy in the northeast yeah. uh, after a real period of misery in the 1930s. Although, yeah. you know, as Jonathan says, you know, Sunderland did win the league. In fact, I think they're the last team to wear stripes to win the English top flight. That's great. That was a question in the Blizzard quiz uh, only, <laughs> only last night. There you are, you see. There you are. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of football in the early 50s, uh, on, you know, on, a, on a sort of national scale, mm. I, I think there was this incredible sense of, of delusion about England's importance. Mm. Uh, so England, England went to, to, to Turin in 1948. And they they beat Italy, who of course were the the you know, reigning double world champions, mm-hmm. beat them four 0 So obviously it's not the same team as, as thirty eight, but this is you know basically that side. I think ten of them played for that great Torino team, who mm-hmm. uh, you know, won the five leagues in a row. Obviously destroyed at Superga the following year. Um, so it, you know, but that result, that four 0 win in Turin, is, is I, I think arguably the the outstanding single result of any England national football team. Um, mm. I mean, obviously, uh, winning a World Cup is, is is a little bit different in terms of a one-off well, game. To go mm. to Italy and win four mm. nil uh, was was something extraordinary. Um, but then they go to the World Cup two years later and lose to the US. But somehow that message doesn't doesn't sink in. And you you have then uh, the the Matthews final in fifty three, which which is related to this game we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. This sort of obsession with Stanley Matthews. Oh that, yeah. That, that Matthews was the most popular, the the best known in in the common perception, the greatest ever English footballer, probably the greatest footballer in the world. You know, he, he wins the first Ballon d'Or, mm. and yet he hadn't won anything. He hadn't won a league, and he hadn't won a cup. He'd been in the cup final in '48 and lost to Manchester United. He was in this cup final in '51, lost to Newcastle. And so '53, by which time he's uh, 38, I think. Eight, yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. And so there's this desperation for him to win. And you know, there's Blackpool. When we did this with with Seb Stafford Blood back in, I think mm. the fourth or fifth one of these we ever did, yeah. that uh, you know, this, the, the, they're three one down to Bolton with twenty minutes to go, and then he inspires the recovery. It's Matthews's final, and this this sort of the the English winger 
um, the, you know, the, the sort of the most revered creative position in the English game. Matthew's the great exemplar of that. Yeah, and, and so in May '53, and as we said in that that, that podcast with Seb, it was the final, the first final that actually got proper penetration on TV because people were buying the TVs for the mm-hmm. for the coronation a few, a few weeks later. And there's this, this sort of this sense that all's well with the world. Rationing's coming to an end or coming to an end. We've had mm. the Festival of Britain. Austerity is, is over. This is his time of rebirth. And look at how great we are. Look, look, look at our form of football being as good as, as this. And six months mm-hmm. later, they get smashed by Hungary and it's all gone yeah, wrong. I was going to say, hung, Hungary put all that to, to bed, didn't they? <laughs> uh, <laughs> soon enough. It's funny you say about um, Matthews because, I mean, talk about the game more in the second half, but... The commentator mentions, you know, Matthews having one last chance to get an FA Cup winner's medal he so desperately wants. And and Matthews was 36 in 1951. And of course, he didn't retire until 1965. Now, I appreciate that he was less likely to win the FA Cup in his sort of 40s and and so on and so forth. But yeah, they didn't realise just how long he would stay in the game. And I mean, part of the reason for that is that 30 was old for footballer in those days. People just didn't go on into their 30s. And I mean, Matthews, uh, I mean, he was vegetarian, I think, wasn't he? But he also, yeah. you know, he famously went running on, on Blackpool Beach every morning. Mm-hmm. So he, he, you know, he actually looked after his fitness. He was teetotal in, in a way that nobody else, nobody else of the time did. So this idea you could just keep going through your 30s, never mind mm-hmm. in your 40s. No, in the, nobody really had a conception of that. They thought 30 was pretty much the end. Yeah, and he lost his six years to the Second World War as well. You know, prime playing the mm. age of the early twenties, early to mid twenties. You know, those mm-hmm. those players who play random wartime fixtures. I think Matthews played for Rangers for a bit. You know, yeah, I think he was based in Egypt. I think wasn't he? So he was doing PT work out in Egypt, and then mm-hmm. yeah, obviously you know his, his his regiment was was based near near enough to Glasgow to to play sort of guest games for Rangers. Yeah. Hmm. All right, gentlemen. Well, let's let's have a quick break, and then after which we'll we'll talk more about the game and some of these uh, glorious old names from English football history. See you in a moment, everybody. It was Newcastle who provided the real thrust. Their quick breaks out of defence were always dangerous, and Melbourne scored the second and conclusive goal. And Walker slips it along the ground to Taylor, and he back heels it to Melbourne and shoots, and it's a goal, a terrific goal by Melbourne. The shot hit the net like a bullet. Welcome back to the greatest games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. Um, so we talked a bit about uh, Stanley Matthews before he was Sir Stanley Matthews, of course, then. Um, I mean, the, that famous Blackpool front line w- had some players in there. I mean, Stan Mortensen as well, obviously Bill Perry, who would um, get the winning goal uh, in in the cup final, Bill Slater and, and, and Jackie Muddy, is it pronounced? Moody, um, I think. Yeah, Moody. Moody, yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, I mean, Jonathan, there's there's goals in that front line. To be fair, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Bill Slater you know, goes on to uh, to win the league three times with Wolves. You know, good, mm. you know, really good footballer. Stan Mortensen, one of the greatest English centre forwards there's ever been, scored two goals in that game. We're talking about in Turin. His his relationship with Matthews was was clearly key to that. Um, and, and yeah, we we've, we've sort of you know, <laughs> and I, I recognise we will have a tendency to do this. 
But you know, Dan and I have been beating the Northeast drum. There's, there's uh, you know, you look at how many Northeast play, you know, born players, not you know, mm. players who, who have come from the Northeast are in the two lineups. Yeah. yeah. So you know, you you've, you've got in the, in the Newcastle team, you've got Bobby Cowley from Trimden, who worked down the pit at Horden until 1942 when he you know he, he suddenly gets the call up. Bobby Corbett was from Newcastle. Uh, Charlie Crow was from Newcastle. Charlie Crow, who went on to manage Egypt, which seems an incredibly odd thing. <laughs> um, Ernie Taylor, who who would you would move to move to Blackpool, uh, would be in that side in '53, um, and, and his only England cap. I mean, the unluckiest bloke in the world. His only England cap comes in the six-three defeat to Hungary. But right. yeah, he, he's he's from Sunderland. Jackie Milburn, obviously from Ashington. And and I suspect we might be doing smashing gags later on. I certainly certainly hope <laughs> I hope and persuade Dan to do smashing gags later on. Yeah, then mean. in the Blackpool side, you've got um, Tommy Garrett and Stan Mortensen, both from South Shields. Yeah, and, and Mortensen's still the only man to score a hat trick in the final, isn't he? Uh, well, Raheem Sterling did last year, I think. Didn't oh, of course, he? yeah. But but until mm. then, yeah. Yeah. Well, one one lad who wasn't from the northeast was was George Robledo or Robledo, depending on the. Uh, yeah. On, on which side of the fence you fall? It, 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 I was when I looked at these the starting lineups for final. I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't expect to see a Chilean in there, um, but there he was, and, and he moved here when he was, I think, five years old. His parents came over, of course, and he and Jackie Milburn, they were they were the goal scorers in, in that side. I mean, R- Rob Lido, the first non-British registered foreign player to become top scorer in England. Um, Who was the second? Here's a question for you. The f- uh, to become top scorer, yeah. I think you might have to fast forward quite far for that. You do, and I think. Uh, well, I know Dwight York took his. Dwight York record. is correct. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, Dwight York took his record because he was uh, the highest scoring non-Irish overseas player in the English top flight until York got the record. So I've I've put two and two together. Uh, my favourite bit of trivia about uh, Rob Lido is um, his winning goal in the 1952 FA Cup final was was drawn by a young John Lennon who included it in the artwork of his album Walls and Bridges in 1974. So there you are. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, um, was it? No, is it his goal? Yeah, I believe that's because I thought so, the yeah. point was that well, the, the the artwork definitely features Milburn then because there's a number nine on it, which is why Lennon includes it. Right. Okay. Because Lennon was obsessed by the number nine, <laughs> okay. oh, uh, and also the um, George Swindon, the Arsenal player, is is in that drawing as well. Yeah, so that's it. Was the nineteen fifty two FA Cup final yeah, Newcastle yeah. against Arsenal? Yeah, which yeah. Uh, Rob Lado scored the goal. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we've we've mentioned his name a couple of times. Jackie Milburn. Um, what what <laughs> what a player, Dan. What a player! Yeah, he's he's come to represent that era and that team because yeah. he he won the three, he, he he got the three FA Cup winners medals. I think it's just him and Cowell, uh, Bobby Cowell got the uh, were in, in the three finals. Uh, Mitchell was as well. Oh, Mitchell, yes, yeah, uh, it was, it was the three signed, of them. Yeah, signed from the famous third Lanark. Remember them? Oh, um, yeah. yeah, it went on to be a public in Newcastle. But yeah, Jackie Milburn. It, it, you know, I think it's a cliche to say he's a folk hero, but he really was partly because I think the the crowd saw in him a lot of themselves. You know, he was a pitman from the famous, the biggest pit village in the world, Ashington. Uh, this real breeding ground of uh, tremendous footballers. His his cousin Sissy, uh, whose brothers he, she had four brothers who played professional football: three for Leeds, one for Leicester, 
and Sissy's son was a court sons were Bobby and Jackie Chom. Mm. Um incredible footballing pedigree really but a tremendous play he has some uh, superficially in the goal scoring record he gets he gets nearly 200 goals from Newcastle in about 400 appearances or so um it's it's up there shearer has got the record and there's there is some superficial similarities in that the kind of local boys done well but there was there's the scorers of spectacular goals different mm. sorts of players milburn was famously a sprinter uh, a bit like tommy walker who was the right right winger for newcastle that day they mm. they sprinted at powder hall in edinburgh which is this famous meeting place of um, professional sprinters back in the day but he was very fast and uh, he started off as on the wing and he reverted back there in late, in later life. Uh, but he, he was a scorer of spectacular long-range goals and that, and he got one of them that day uh, at <laughs> Wembley. Um, but there's always been this slight hero worship of number nines for Newcastle, mm. going back to Huey Gallagher probably and Malcolm McDonald and Les Ferdinand and, and, and players like that. And I, I there's something kind of glamorous and swashbuckling about the number nine figure mm. which I, I i connect back actually in the in the victorian period in newcastle the the, the working class sport per, par excellence was rowing um mm. sculling on and there was these great contests between the thames and the tyne and there was some huge popular figures such as james renforth and harry clasper kind of muscular heroic figures and there's a bit of a pedigree there that links links the center forward i think to Mm-hmm. to um, that, that sense of individualism to an extent and putting them on the pedestal. Um, yeah. But, yeah, Milburn, a, a, a tremendous player, worked worked down the pit until 1948, until uh, the coal dust had started to cause him trouble with his ears, I think. Um, 13 goals and, and 10 caps for England, never really got going yeah. in an England shirt. And I think Tom Finney once said that um, he had a bit of an inferiority complex and he had to try and, you know, Encourage Jackie Milburn to say, you know, you're, you're here on merit. You know, don't don't doubt yourself. Even well, there's that the- story, isn't it, about about his? I mean, I guess it's links into what you're saying about his sprinting ability. That at a, a school sports day, and he'd already won like you have 100 meters in the high jump and you know, half a dozen other events, and he he wins the 440 yard dash, and sort of collapses over the line, and his his dad has walked in, and his dad, you know, was also a a, a footballer. Yeah. And, and so sees him, kind of claps over the line, thinks he's sort of showboating, and you know, gives him a hiding for it. And it doesn't realise he's already won six other events. And so I yeah. think his dad was was pretty tough on him, and you know, yeah. definitely kind of you know make sure you're not the tallest poppy, kind of you know keep your head down. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I mean, and you know, everybody who who uh, knew Milburn, and, and you know, he subsequently worked in journalism in the northeast, said he was you know the most modest, sort of mm-hmm. almost shy bloke. So yeah. you know, a low, a low, this sort of glam of a number nine, uh, and he absolutely represents that. And you know, he is still kind of—I mean, I guess Shearer maybe is, 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 is sort of come up to that level now. But when I was a, a kid at school, Melbourne was still, you know, he is the centre forward. Yeah. And yet his personality really kind of was not that. You know, the mm-hmm. shirt had that. He 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 did not. A bit yeah, similar well, to Bobby Charlton in that sort of diffidence and modesty. And there's there's footage of Milburn actually making a speech speech at St James's Park when the team come back, and you can tell he's sort of he's a shy fella. But he, he makes a, a short, charming speech. But you can tell it's a bit of a it's a, it's a bit of an ordeal for him. Yeah, um, and there's also the the thing with the Ashington accent, which maybe we we should explain. Do, do, do you want to explain that, Dan? Yeah, well, the, 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 there's variations on the northeast accent, as, jo- as Jonathan will know, and it and um, one of the one of the most peculiar variants of it 
is is variously known as Pitmatic, which is the sort of is the, basically the Geordie accent of the coalfield areas out out of mm-hmm. the out of the urban kind of parts of Tyneside and Wearside. But the Ashington one is particularly peculiar, and the old there's a, there's a couple of <laughs> old standards. One is bloke goes into a barber's and Ashington says, uh, and the barber says, "What'll it be, sir?" And the fellow says, well, can I have a perm, please? And the barber says, certainly, sir. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. I don't know if these jokes travel, that's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, let's get to the game itself. There was there was 100,000 people at Wembley, as as there could be back in those days. And I, I, I assume it was sunny. It's hard to tell with the black and white footage. It seemed pretty pretty clear. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Dan, what are your uh, sort of immediate thoughts on on the match itself? It's pretty hard to find even yeah. extended highlights of it, of course. Um, but it was uh, it was a cup final, and, and from what I've picked up from the commentary, if that's what you can call it, Blackpool seemed to be quite fancied in this game. Yeah, well, it was third against fourth. Uh, Blackpool mm. were third that season. It was the, it was the season that the famous push and run Spurs side won, won the league but you know Blackpool in third Newcastle in fourth who who were pretty consistently in the sort of sort of Champions League spots if you might describe it that way since since they got promoted in the late 40s um pretty nip and took two strong sides um and the deadlock is broken just after half time with a mm. uh, with a pass from uh, Robledo uh which finds uh Milburn more or less on the halfway line uh, unmarked, he seems to have acres of space to run into, and you know, I think he said it in, in later life, you know, time stood still as he kind of bears down on George Farm, the Blackpool uh, goalie, who ended up as a lighthouse keeper, which is a good, good subsequent career for a goalkeeper. But anyway, he bears down on he bears down on George <laughs> Farm and just tucks it away with his right foot in the bottom corner while uh, Farm sticks a leg out. Um, and then five minutes later, there's 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 a bit of play on the edge of the box. The great Ernie oh. Taylor um, does a back heel, and then and then uh, Milburn, uh, which apparently Milburn called for back heel at Ernie, and um, he swings his left foot at it, and it absolutely arrows into the top corner. Oh man, it's a and beauty! So, it's a beauty, isn't it? And there's some great photographs of this final. It's not, there's only about a five minute Pathé clip on YouTube. Yeah, but- it's so well photographed, and there's a great one of a farm just arms outstretched, flying through the air. You know, looking looking backwards as it as it yeah. up the onion bag. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a thing of beauty. Well, to be a team. called it the greatest goal he'd ever seen. And I think Matthew oh. shook Milburn's hand on the way back to the centre circle. Uh, you know, well done, son, kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So. To, the, I mean, I have to say, I wasn't I wasn't expecting that when I was when I was watching the highlights. You know, one can have a stereotype of football back then, um, you know, not as glamorous as it as it would become even just two decades later. Mm. Uh, and, and you see the first goal, and again, the goalkeeper just sort of sticks out a leg. You know, you'd, you'd fancy a goalkeeper to smother him now or, or, you know, kind of spread his body or something like that. Uh, and 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 again, it doesn't it doesn't look as perhaps graceful and, and so on and so forth as it as it might do nowadays or in or in subsequent decades. When mm. that goal went in, I was like, bloody hell! It was it's an absolute beauty. It was sort of twenty five thirty yards into the top corner, it just flew in, as you say. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think George Farm is a, is a goalkeeper we quite rightly criticised in the podcast we did in fifty three Cup final. Mm. He he does not look anything like uh, you know, what you'd expect from a modern goalkeeper, and you know, uh, famously. 
had this idea that it was, you know, he, he liked to catch the ball sort of you know, vertically rather than getting his hands behind oh, it. So yes. it like so a snapping strange. crocodile. Oh, and yeah. when, I, when I first saw that goal, my instinct was, oh dear, George Farms let himself down again. And I think the first goal, it's a pretty pathetic habit. The second goal, you could have had, yeah. you know, Peter Schmeichel in his pomp in there. It's still flying yeah. in the top corner. It's a brilliant goal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Superb goal. Um, and, and they're the, the two moments really of the game. I mean, you can, you can tell at some points Matthews is getting frustrated and he's really trying to take the game to Newcastle yeah. and various points. But the, the defence stood solid and, and he didn't get through, Dan. Yeah, they had some good fullbacks. And you look at you look at footage of Matthews now, and uh, he was obviously at top of his game. You know, vegetarian. He used to uh, um, didn't he was pioneer of kind of the lower slung football boot in the late fifties and moving away from those heavy, oh. heavy tuted boots. Um, he was a bit of a pioneer. Whereas Milburn, apparently his his regular pre match meal was two pork pies and a bottle of pop. Like like Stan's vegetarian diet, but yeah, 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 we watch you watch Matthews, and it it always slightly reminds me of you know that um, uh, Harry Enfield sketch, you know Charlie (laughs) Farns and all that dancing around the ball because he seems to have a very (laughs) just does that same trick where it's like one touch, two touch, then he drops the right shoulder and he he tries to go past the fullback. (laughs) You think well, it worked for him, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah, but he missed. He missed out this year, and this set set things up nicely for the fifty three final. Because I think he promised his father on on his deathbed to you know win an FA Cup or something like that. Yeah, so that's, that's right. right. Um, but he, yeah, he missed out. And Newcastle had some decent fullbacks back then. Apparently, uh, uh, in in Corbett and Cowell, who were quite who were, were quite well rated. They had a good centre half in Frank Brennan. Um, they managed as well. The, the managers on, in either dugout are, are interesting as well because you've got Stan Seymour for Newcastle, mm. who was a sort of director manager. Newcastle mm. were one of the last teams, I think, to appoint a full-time um, manager uh, in that sense. Uh, and Stan Seymour had won the cup with Newcastle in 1924. And, and opposite him was Joe Smith, who played in the first Wembley final in uh, in 1923 for Bolton uh, when they won. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they took the, took the cup. Yeah, would I be? I mean, Stan Seymour's an interesting guy. I mean, Mister Newcastle United. You know, people used to to call him. He was attached to the club for so many years. Yeah. He was in charge during the war years um, and stepped down in 1947. But well, I say he stepped down as manager, but I think he became a director or something, as you as you mentioned, Dan. But he yeah. he, he was back in 1950. But there was something I found that was saying. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the guy, George Martin, who was in charge in between, he was the one who played Jackie Milburn through the middle of the attack rather than on the wing where Seymour and one, even Jackie Milburn himself was saying, no, 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 I, I'll just keep me on the wing. Don't put me in the middle. I can't, mm. I, I'm not, I'm not good enough or I can't handle that. But this guy, George Martin was the one who said, no, Jackie, you're playing through the middle and, and which ultimately led to the player that everybody uh, either remembers or knows of. Well, yeah. there's a story about Melbourne, isn't there? That um, you know, he, he 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 went to one of these wartime friendlies in I think '43, maybe '42, and he sort of thought to himself, "Actually, this lot aren't any better than me. I'll, I'll give it a go." <laughs> I turned up for a trial, and he used to play this trial at the start of the season between stripes and, and non-stripes, and he was playing for the stripes. And he played on the wing, and his team's three 0 down at half time. He gets moved into the middle, 
And I think he scored six in the second half or something, and his team went on to win 9 <laughs> 3. That's right. Yeah. And, and so, that, yeah, the, the, the clues were there. But yeah, you're right. Is he, you know, when he started out playing for the, you know, for the, for the proper team, for the first team, it, mm. it was as a left winger, I guess, because of his pace. And it was this sort of idea that you, know, you mm. put your quick, skillful men out wide. Yeah. And he, he was he was always a heavy smoker throughout his life, and I think it was it caused the cancer that killed him. And so he, they say that he was declining in the mid fifties, and he was dro- he was going to be dropped for the fifty five final uh, until Steam- Seymour reinstated him and went over the manager's head. And he didn't play at centre forward that day; it was Vic Keeble. And uh, the story is in the fifty five final that Roy Paul, who's the Man City captain, it, it's it hasn't a minute hasn't even been played, but Newcastle have got a corner. And Roy Paul says, oh, shit, I should be marking uh, Vic Kibo as this big strapping centre-forward, left Milburn unmarked. And he scores this extraordinary header after 45 seconds. It's worth looking up because the kind of angle looks impossible, but he kind of twists his neck and it's a bullet header into the top corner. He wasn't known for for headed goals necessarily, Milburn. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he he, he, uh, he got, got the winner's medal again in 55 when it was nip and tuck whether he'd play at all. And that was the quickest goal in the cup final till Roberto Di Matteo in '97. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So that was, and that would be the last time Newcastle won a major domestic trophy. Of course, we have to say domestic because the uh, the Interfairs Trophy. Yeah, uh, that's right. Of course, but which they won I under mean, Joe Harvey, who was playing at uh, right half in this game. No, yeah. Right. What a generation of former Army PT instructors, and I think he may, may have even been part. of or went to learn from Walter Winterbottom's kind of um, innovations in coaching in the in the mid fifties. So quite a forward thinking uh, manager coach in that respect, Joe Harvey. Um, but yeah, steered them steered them in the nineteen sixty nine Fairs Cup, and then stayed on the books in Newcastle more or less until he died in the late eighties in various roles. Um, well, he was a manager in seventy four in the cup final as well, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. When he looks very uncomfortable next to Bill Shankly when he's doing that conducting the orchestra thing. You know <laughs> Sit right next to each other, the two managers, awkwardly uh, for some reason. <laughs> but yeah, the Newcastle. Yeah, you're right. It's the last. It's the last domestic trophy, and there is undoubtedly in the fifties. I don't know if it's the high water mark of this. That sense of the the FA Cup being the most prestigious tournament to yeah. some people, having this extraordinary yeah. cachet. And I don't know if it's just because Newcastle didn't. You know, Wyatt Earp was still breathing the last time Newcastle were champions of England. Uh, in- <laughs> 27 um, but they won the cup you know three times in the 50s and the, the razzmatazz that surrounded it all big day out in London you know the processions back through Newcastle on those three occasions I mean they look like the D-Day landings or something they're just extraordinary <laughs> crowds of people you know the big day out aspect of it all I think was important um, well, I think that's true right through till certainly till sort of late 80s early 90s Mm. Uh, I think probably till the coming of the Premier League really is when it's is when it, it really sort of flips. But I, I still think when I was a kid, sort of you, know, you, you knew that maybe the league was the the test of which the best side was, but the cup was the exciting thing to win. Yeah. And you know, when Sunderland yeah. got the cup final in '92, it was it was the most exciting thing that ever happened so, like, in in my lifetime. And you know, queuing overnight to get tickets and everything that was all all part of the part of the fun of it. Mm. So, how does how does football then begin to look after this kind of successful period down in Newcastle, winning three FA Cups in in pretty quick succession? And you've described the the uh, the, the, the 
I suppose the uh, the progression and the sort of success in terms of industry and, and football and so on and so forth that mm. was happening in that part of the country at the time. How then does it begin to look as it goes as as you move away from the fifties into the into the sort of sixties? Well, it it, de- it declines pretty sharply. They're they're relegated mm. in, in the late fifties. Jonathan will know the exact year. I think Sunderland are relegated in the late fifties as well. So Sunderland it's are camp- relegated in fifty eight. I'm afraid I don't know exactly when Newcastle were relegated. But yeah, Sunderland Sunderland's first ever relegation was 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 fifty eight. Yeah, Newcastle were back in the top flight in sixty five under Joe Harvey's uh, manager. Uh, ship and um, and then they, they they've got a quite an exciting side in the, in the mid sixties and you've got you've got players like Bobby Monker coming through and uh, and they win that final and the, the route to the final in sixty nine is is they, they play some pretty decent sides uh, you know Rangers is the famous one that lives on in in folk memory because of the enormous rammy that pre- proceeded around mm. the ground um, but they had a re- reasonable team in, in that period they got to the the early seventies. You, the sign Malcolm McDonald gets a hat trick on his debut against Liverpool. They get to the final, and it's a huge disappointment um, when they lose three 0 against a very strong Liverpool side. It must be said. But the semi final against Burnley at at, um, at Hillsborough in seventy four is fairly spectacular. Um, in fact, if you I urge your listeners to to look up the, the highlights of that game because there's a pass by Terry Hibbert that plays in Malcolm McDonald is is the most exquisite thing (laughs) you'll ever see. He hits it on the half volley with his left foot and just plays in McDonald who just bears down on the keeper and smashes it in. But it's a thing of beauty. But that was a sort of high watermark. They get Mm. to the League Cup final in 76. And get Uh, get undone by one of their own as well. Undone by Dennis Stewart, yeah. Dennis Stewart, Newcastle fan, won the Cup with Sunderland and then scores the overhead kick, which was the last, you know, won the last trophy for City until... Until Sheikh Mansur turned up. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a really, really steep decline in the late 70s and early 80s, and it's dismal, really pathetically small crowds. You know, you get the the, play, the the sense of real depression hanging over the place. Then Keegan, you know, when he when he comes back in the early 80s, that, that mm. injects a bit more excitement uh, into following Newcastle, and he gets them promoted uh, in 84 and then retires, and then the rest mm. is history. Yeah. Um, and we, we mentioned... Um, Stan Seymour obviously earlier well interestingly Kevin Keegan promised during his spell in charge to rename the club's youth academy after Seymour although that wasn't carried out due to Keegan's resignation but uh, you know that's uh, classic Keegan stuff there but (laughs) (laughs) but he did but he did he did did, you see that's where that's the Newcastle I know with Keegan getting them going again in it would be the 90s I suppose there Um, but I, I do find it extraordinary the club like Newcastle, you know, 1955 was the last major trophy. And they came close, you know, obviously did the final against Arsenal and Shearer hit the post and and, and so and on. And United in 99. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. But unfortunately for them, they, they came up against two very, very good sides, you know. Yeah, um, but and there a couple we of are. second place finishes, you know, in the, in mm. the late 90s as well. Well, Dan, it was, uh, it was a pleasure talking about uh, the 1951 FA Cup final with you. I'm sure uh, certainly older Newcastle fans. Well, I say older Newcastle fans. I'm not sure if anybody would have listened to this podcast would have watched that game. But, but Newcastle fans would have enjoyed it nonetheless. So uh, thank you very much, Dan. Really Mike. appreciate that. And as Dan said, uh, for more stories like that, go to theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, we can find out a lot more. Um, thank you very much, Jonathan. Pleasure as Cheers, always. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.
This was a Stakhanov production.